I, I, I do rather feel that I have this morning been given both the long straw and the short straw. Uh, three chapters of Genesis. Um, hope your lunch is in the slow cooker. <laughs> um, but also the short straw. Uh, you know, come back next week. Next week is rainbows. Next week is covenant. <laughs> but this week is judgment. Uh, a difficult topic, a serious topic. But as we will see, judgment comes also with mercy from our God. Let's read together from uh, chapter 6 of Genesis. We'll not read all three chapters, but we will start with chapter 6. Chapter 6 runs as follows. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So, make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. We'll pause there for a moment. Uh, It follows in chapter 7 
uh, an account of life in the ark. Noah and his family go in, the animals come in, and then we're told that the, the springs burst open and water comes up from the ground. The rain falls and water comes down on the earth for 40 days, and the waters rise and cover the earth. And we find the results of this at verse 21 of chapter 7. So we'll pick up there. Chapter 7, verse 21. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Everything on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground, the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Then follows an account of the drying out of the earth, which took Days and days and days again. And where everything was reversed that had happened. And then finally, as you may recall in the story, a raven being sent out and a dove being sent out until it didn't return. And no one knew that it was safe. We pick up the story at verse 13 of chapter 8. Verse 13. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. This is the word of God. And may he bless the public reading of it. On the 5th of November, 2018, the last ever series of Big Brother on Channel 5, was broadcast. I'm reliably informed, for people who like these things, that it's coming back to ITV2 this year. Yeah. The last ever Channel 5 series of Big Brother was won by 19-year-old Cameron Cole from Norwich. He had survived weekly judgments by his housemates and, of course, by the general public. On the 24th of March last year, on BBC One, The Apprentice was won by Harpreet Kaur. 
all other contestants having been fired by Sir Alan Sugar. A final judgment, if ever there were one. There seems to be little doubt that in our generation, we are comfortable with judgment. Just so long as it's a judgment on someone else and not on me. And preferably, if I can be a voyeur in the process, watching remotely while casting my vote electronically. In what seems to me at least to be an anything but reality TV program. Judgment is a 21st century thing. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. Well, we come this morning in your series on the first 11 chapters in Genesis to the topic of judgment. As we tackle chapters 6, 7, and 8, we are presented with one thing we cannot deny. For as we read, we find that the God of the Bible is a God of judgment. Notice, of course, that I said the God of the Bible and not the God of the Old Testament. The Bible presents us with the simple truth that there is but one God, a God of judgment, who is also, as we shall see, a God of mercy and a God of love. Genesis has already presented us with God's loving acts of creation. But we have also seen that those he created to love him back have chosen a different route, creating a problem, the problem of sin. Indeed, so deep has become the depravity of mankind that we find at verse 5 in chapter 6 this awful statement. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now, we're going to pick up at verse 5 just in a moment, but I just want to take a second to talk about verses 1 to 4 before we go on. We won't study that section this morning for the simple reason that there are probably more theories about verses 1 to 4 than there are theologians. Um, But I want us to note one important thing, and and if you've got your Bibles open, please follow me on this. Would you look at verse 2 of chapter 6? The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Now, when you look at the the verbs, which are perhaps a little simpler in the Hebrew, you see that they saw what they saw was good. That is, it was attractive to them. And they took, they took the women as their wives. Turn back with me just a page for a moment to chapter 3. To chapter 3 and the fall, which uh, you studied recently. Chapter 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, what did she do? She took some and ate it. She saw what she saw was good And she took it. What did we have in chapter 6? That they saw what they saw was good. And they took it. What's going on here? Well, the author is using identical wording to paint a picture. 
what is happening in the early verses of chapter 6, whatever they mean in detail, which we, I just don't think we can fathom it at this this distance, but the early verses of chapter 6 stand as our context for what we will see next. What is happening there is exactly the same sinfulness, exactly the same wickedness that happened at the fall. And the writer, the author, has painted that picture for us. If we're honest, that's still the case today. We look at what we find attractive, and casting off any restraint, any moral imperative, we take what we want, irrespective of what God has said is acceptable or unacceptable. It's my life. I'll do as I please. I'll have that. Thank you. You only live life once after all. Is it any wonder that in verse 5, God's observation is that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time? For they, in their day, and us now, we turn away from him to follow our own desires. But look now at how this loving, creative God responds in the very next verse, in verse 6. Look at the pain of sin. In verse 6 we read this, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Do you recall at the end of uh, chapter 1, God saw all that he had created, especially mankind, and he saw that it was very good. But now he looks and sees that wickedness and evil have overtaken his creation. More than this, verse 11, the earth was full of violence. And verse 12, the people had corrupted their ways. Is it any wonder that he had regrets and was deeply troubled? I wonder, do we ever stop and think that God hurts over our sin? Well, what is he to do about it? We suit ourselves, we go our own way, we do not do what he intends for us. But God is pure and God is holy. He cannot look on sin. It's the simple truth that the Bible presents us with that human beings have put themselves outside of God's ways. And God cannot accommodate this. He cannot ignore it. He would not be true to himself if he ignored sin. Hard as we may find it to accept, God is right to judge sin. He's a righteous God and a righteous judge. And he simply wouldn't be God if he were not. The New Testament teaches us that the wages of sin is death, that judgment comes. But there is more. For the constant message of the Bible is that in the midst of all that, there is hope. The God of the Bible is a God of judgment, but also a God of mercy. He himself is that very provider of hope. And so we have not just verse 7, So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, for I regret that I made them, judgment. But also, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's mercy. Judgment in verse 7, mercy in verse 8. 
For here we find in Noah a person selected, a person saved. I want us to park here for a moment and be sure that we know what's going on. Here's what's not going on. God did not kind of look around to find a good candidate. God did not line up every member of humankind and tell them, you're fired, until he came to Noah, you'll do, the pick of the bunch. People were not kicked out of the big brother house, losing the popular vote until just Noah was left. Nor indeed was Noah the strongest link. No. Noah, we are told, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This favor, which is also translated as grace, comes from God. One commentator suggests that this is best understood in the phrase, grace found Noah. Grace found Noah. For you see, it is bestowed on Noah by God. When we read verse 8, verse 8 is a lovely verse, a wonderful verse. But I find no report in it at all of Noah meriting any favor from God. Indeed, when the Bible talks about God's grace, what it means is God's unmerited favor. The bestowing on human beings of that to which they are not entitled. The New Testament writer Paul helps us to see this clearly. For writing in Ephesians 2 verse 8, he stated, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. (laughs) I think Paul could have been writing a commentary on Genesis 6. You see, this little subsection, and and I think the the, the compilers of, of our Bibles are right to put a break between 8 and 9. This subsection of Genesis ending at verse 8 addresses the dreadful problem of sin. It addresses the pain God feels over it, but it finishes on a high note. For as we come towards God's impending judgment in the flood, we are confronted directly by God's grace towards Noah. And it's in that light that we realize that verse 9 begins a new section. It's not the explanation of verse 8. But rather, having received God's unmerited favor, Noah is now found to be righteous. Indeed, the word blameless is even used of him. But there is a context among the people of his time. It's a relative statement. Noah is now, unlike all those around about him, walking faithfully with God. We might even say he had been converted. The Apostle Paul again, this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. In fact, of course, nowhere in all the Bible will we find the idea that we can earn God's favor. God's grace saved Noah and made him the man he became. For God changes people. Well, that's quite a big lot of theology. (laughs) Let's remember that God not only changed Noah to become a righteous man, 
but he also changed him to become a builder. Let's think for a moment about building. Other than the post-war building of um, Gilmerton Dykes and indeed, indeed Fernie Hill, I reckon, and you tell me later if you think I'm wrong, I reckon the modern expansion of Edinburgh in this corner of the town began in 1990 with the Murrays down off Lasswade Road. Okay? I mean, nowadays there seem around here to be houses going up in every field available. Um, but I remember back in the 70s, we had cousins lived in Gilmerton and we played in the fields uh, that are now the Murrays. Great fun. Well, in Noah's day, it wasn't houses being built in the fields. It was a muckle great boat. There's a model at the back you can look at afterwards, a picture on the screen. Um, can you imagine the ridicule? <laughs> hey, Noah, you waiting for a big wave? <laughs> Ach, you'll never get that to float down the birdie house, burn boy. What are you doing playing at Yet this boat, this ark, though the people may have mocked, this ark which Noah built, this ark was God's provision of salvation. God's provision of salvation. This ark, which the writer, we assume Moses, spends much of chapter 6 and 7 describing in great detail, this ark would prove to be the only way in which salvation would be found. Salvation from the impending flood. Salvation from God's judgment. Everyone inside it would be saved. Everyone outside of it would perish. The ark is a perfect picture of the gospel. The ark is a perfect model of Jesus. Jesus is the ark. If you take nothing else away from this sermon this morning, take that away. Jesus is the ark. What do I mean? Well, Jesus made at least seven I am statements that we know of. They're recorded in John's gospel, and one of them is, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The consistent message of the Bible is not only that God will provide a way of salvation from our sins, but that he would provide one way, and one way only, through Jesus, his son. Here in Genesis, as in many places in the Old Testament, we have what we call a foreshadowing of this, an illustration that points forward. There was only one way in which Noah and his family would be saved. Only one way in which they would escape God's judgment. They had to get into the ark. For if they had remained outside, they would have perished. And so it is today that our only hope and our only way of salvation from God's judgment over our sin is to be in Christ. Jesus is the ark. I spoke this week with a, a nurse uh, who was treating me in the NHS. When she heard that my work was in Christian ministry, she began talking about her interests in Buddhism and how being a good person and doing the right things was important to her. I agreed that doing good things was important, but was able to share with her that we cannot work our way to God's perfect standard, nor can we find salvation anywhere outside of Christ. 
The truth is that any amount of good works will never remove us from God's judgment. Only trust in Christ's sinless perfection, trust in his death and resurrection can do that. Noah, in his newfound relationship with God, Noah did a good thing. Noah, verse 22 tells us, did everything just as God commanded him. But he wasn't doing good to work his way to heaven. Rather, Noah's life of obedience to God was in response to the salvation he had been brought by being brought into the ark. But what a pathway Noah was to experience as he obeyed God. For there came a great deluge. Chapter 7 gives all the detail. And from the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year to the 27th day of the second month of his 601st year, Noah and his family spent a full year in the ark. That's a good answer to hold on to for trivia quizzes. Not 40 days. I wonder if you saw the recent documentary series about the aircraft carrier. Even though they are at sea for months, they have stops at ports to go ashore. And even when COVID came onto the ship, there was isolation in cabins, but only for 10 days at a time. Noah and his family, however, with all those animals, were cooped up for a whole year. It can't have been easy. I think... um, I think it's probably worth pausing for a while then to think about what I have called, to keep my alliteration going, the pathway of sanctification. He obeyed God, but it wasn't easy. Let's think about this for a moment. Stay with me. If we're saved by God, then we're called to whatever he brings to us. And for many of us, all of us at times, I guess, Our pilgrimage with God can be a rough passage. What must it have been like in the ark all through that year? Shut in, storm-tossed, no end in sight. They didn't know it was lasting a year. All those animals. I mean, not to mention the mucking out. And I'm trying to work this out. There was a gap at the top. Could, Could they get it? You know, I mean, it must have been pretty awful in there. Was this cramped, noisy, smelly ark, was this all God had for him? There are trials associated with following God's will. When others around about us are choosing their own way, getting what they want, spending on themselves. But maybe, maybe you're a Christian believer and and things have turned out tough for you. Maybe you feel shut in, locked in. Oh, you've done what you believe to be right. You've got down on your knees and you have genuinely submitted your way to God. But that way turned out tough, hard, no end in sight. Maybe family life has taken a difficult turn. Did did, did Noah and his family get on together all that time? Cooped up? I don't know. Living with the in-laws and all that. Maybe you've been passed over for, for promotion at work. Maybe you can't find or afford the house you'd like. Maybe you're serving God in the church. And actually, do you know, you wouldn't say this to anyone, but it's just become hard work. Lord, do you still need me to do this? 20 years I've been doing this. I'm tired. I can't see fruit for my labor. 
Maybe things have gotten so tough for you in your walk of discipleship, in your pathway of sanctification. You can echo the words of the psalmist in Psalm 77. Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Noah may well have had cause to despair. He may have wondered if God had forgotten him. But as we turn into chapter 8, at the first verse, we come to the turning point of the story. The turning point of the story. For there we read, but God remembered Noah. God remembers. He does not forget. Indeed, God had never forgotten Noah. That he remembered him is to say that it was at this point, which was five months into the year-long passage, at this point God chose to intervene graciously. There was still much to come as the waters receded and the land dried out. But God was there in the midst of it with Noah. And maybe that's the message you need to hear this morning. God remembers you. Sometimes life is like that, isn't it? We can't see God. We think we're on our own. We're in the midst of a storm and we're feeling isolated. Deluged even. God has not forgotten us. He steps in graciously, mercifully, to bring us to safety and reveal to us that he has been with us all along. Yes, and even that the storm... (laughs) And the difficulty was in his plan for us. Truly that God does work all things together for good. For those who love the Lord. Noah, despite still having heard nothing from God since they were shut in. Noah is remembered by God. God has a loving concern for Noah. God is preserving Noah. God has not let Noah go. And God remembers his creation too. God has plans for a future for his creation. And he's about to show his hand. For now, notice God sends a wind over the earth. And the waters recede. If the waters had represented the judgment of God, then the wind surely represents the mercy of God. It's not the Spirit of God that we saw in chapter 1. Yet it represents the prevailing of God's sovereignty. The prevailing of God's sovereignty. For this wind is used by God to ensure that the waters recede. In the midst of chapter 7, which we, we missed reading earlier on, verses 11 and 12, we're told that the springs burst open, bringing water up from the earth. And the heavens burst open, bringing water down from the sky. But when we read verse 2 in chapter 8, these actions are reversed. The world is being restored. Restored by God's sovereign power. Restored into a habitable state. Restored just into the form it had been created by his sovereign power in the first place. God's judgment restores order. God's mercy is real. One commentator remarks the waters were no longer able to triumph. God is sovereign, not nature. God had a plan. He was dealing with the problem of sin. 
Remember, it's still there. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. God's heart was grieving with the pain of sin. He regretted his acts of creation. Yet his judgment was tempered by his mercy. And in his sovereignty, he would be both judge and savior. His creation would be kick-started and a line of human life would be maintained. For God is sovereign. Well, after a full year in the ark, we're told in verse 14 of chapter 8 that the earth was completely dry. And then for the first time in a year, God speaks. Not only does Noah hear his word again, but God's word of command is another indication of his sovereignty. Noah is to do as he is told. Come out of the ark, says God. And Noah does so. It was one small step for a man. One giant step for a restored mankind. But after releasing the animals, what would Noah do? Go exploring? Build a house? No. What would you do? Verse 20 tells us what Noah did. He built a place of sacrifice. A place of sacrifice. Verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Noah's first reaction was to sacrifice to God. Noah was not perfect. Indeed, verse 21 reminds us that sin was still in the world. And so saying thank you for deliverance and saying forgive my sin was absolutely necessary. We are told that in his mercy, never again would God act in the way he had done. Indeed, next week you'll look at chapter 9 where a covenant is made by God to that effect. But more of that next week. Just as the Lord had remembered Noah, Noah now remembered the Lord. Which I guess poses a question. Do we remember the Lord? What is our response when the waters subside? When difficulty passes? Great! Life as usual. Let's get on with it. Or do we pause and give thanks to God? Is there something that you need to give thanks for? Have you forgotten God? After he has remembered you, will you return to him to do that? We don't build altars physically anymore. Don't think you put one in the new building. But what about the altar of our hearts? Are we coming to God in thanksgiving, expressed not just in words but in deeds, expressed in changed behaviors, expressed in renewed commitment? No matter what we've come through, or, of course, perhaps, specifically because of what we've come through, that God has brought us through, when God has remembered us. Noah learned by God's grace to honor him. Noah knew by God's mercy that he owed him everything. 
Noah had escaped God's judgment by getting into the ark. What do we know now, this side of the cross? Jesus is the ark. And only in him are we saved. So will you get aboard? Let's pray together. God, our Father, we acknowledge your sovereignty and your righteousness. And we know that you are right to judge us for our sin. Yet we thank you that you are a God of mercy and of love. And that you have provided a way out in your Son. That in him and in him only we may escape the proper judgment that we deserve. Help us if we have never responded to Christ before, to do that today, to say to you, I want to be in the ark, I need to be in the ark. For those of us who've been that journey, maybe many years, will you Spar on our hearts to remember, to remember you as you have remembered us and to give thanks and to give glory to you as we go your way, whatever it is that you have for us.